Welcome to the South Canadian Valley Church of Christ podcast. Please enjoy the following study. But sin also brings destructive powers in this life. And understanding the extent of that helps me appreciate the beauty and power of the gospel, but it also helps motivate me to resist the urges of sin in my life. You're tempted. And I'm tempted. I'm not going to stand before you and act like it's any other way. I'm tempted to sin day by day, sometimes moment by moment. And sometimes those temptations are heavy. And we struggle with an internal tension of having faith and confidence and that ongoing blood of Jesus, the blessing that brings when we walk with Him. You know, Versus the whole, yeah, but sin is terrible and it destroys. And so as I've thought about this lesson and building this lesson several months ago, one thought that came to me is studying this and this detail kind of makes me afraid of sin. Well, if I'm afraid of sin, does that mean I don't have faith in the Lord's power to save me from sin? Well, it might or it might not. It might mean I appreciate what he's done for me. I want to be just enough afraid of sin to help motivate me to resist sin. Even if I've got that confidence in my salvation and I know, you know, I can repent and I can turn to the Lord in prayer and I can be forgiven, that does not need to become a license in my heart that, oh, well, you know, it's not such a big deal if I goof up. I need to be aware of how sin can destroy and add that to my arsenal of things I can use to resist temptation. And that's the heart of this morning's study in its purpose. So we're going to talk about the consequences of sin. That first choice, that first domino that falls as is depicted on the screen's graphic and the other dominoes that fall after. And we're going to do this study this morning through the lens of David's story, King David and his sin with Bathsheba and how he coped with that. Proverbs 13 and 15 teaches us good understanding gains favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. This introduces us to the idea that sin is destructive, that the way of sin is a difficult path that it destroys. Temptation to sin is based on the idea that sin is fun. And there's some enjoyable, enjoyable element that, that speaks to the desires of the flesh or we wouldn't want to do it. <coughs> so as we're fighting against that, we've got to fill our hearts with the reminder that, yes, it may appeal to certain things in the flesh, but it also destroys. Whatever pleasure it brings for the moment is far outweighed by the pain that it brings, even in this life, not even to mention eternally. And so we add to the voice of Proverbs 13 what we learn in Psalms 107 and verse 17. Fools, because of their transgression, because of their iniquities, were afflicted. This passage joins then in this collective voice of teaching us that sin destroys by virtue of its natural consequences. Now, this doesn't mean that every time something bad happens to us in life, that that's God watching and, oh, I saw you mess up. Oops, you had a wicked thought. Here, let me gouge you a little bit. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about things that naturally follow as a consequence of sin. And these things are a part of life because of the nature of sin. So let's think together about David's story. 
When I think about King David, I think about the fact that he's one of Israel's greatest leaders. We think about all of his exploits as a leader. We think about the Psalms that he wrote and the encouragement we get from David when we study from those Psalms and add them to our heart, apply them to our heart. But we also think of his sin with Bathsheba. I mean, that's what's David's legacy? Well, we could say all those things about him being a king of Israel and a forerunner of the Messiah and all those things. And invariably, when you think about David before long, you know, well, Bathsheba, you know, that's the adultery he committed with another man's wife. And that was a, such a dark season. And it's the point in the story when you're reading the story and you see uncommon heroism in David's character and in his faith. And it, you're just, it's so easy to drink that in and just love it and love the, the power we see and the great choices that he made in dealing with Saul and a lot of those things. And then you come to this and it's, you just can't stand to read this part of the story. It just hurts. It's so dark because of sin's destructive power. Second Samuel 11 and verse 2 says, It happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. <clears throat> so David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. In a moment of folly, David made a terrible choice and committed adultery. And if you're familiar with the story, you're familiar with what followed. That after this, she became pregnant. And so David, trying to cover that up, got Uriah to come home from the battle. He was a faithful soldier for David. Loyal to the king. <clears throat> hoping to create the appearance that her child that she was to bear would be by her husband rather than by an adulterous affair. But Uriah did not cooperate in all of that. And so David got him drunk and that didn't work. And so David had him killed by betraying him in battle. The soldiers pulling back and leaving him alone in the fight. Just a terrible, terrible, dark season of awful decisions that seemed so out of character with the David that we had known up till this point in the story. It hurts to read this because when you and I look at this, we might realize, okay, well, I didn't do that. Maybe I didn't commit that sin. Maybe you did. Well, maybe I didn't do that, but I've done other things that I know that are wrong, and I'm not that different from Judas, and I'm not that different from this moment in David's life, and it just, it's overwhelming, and we just don't want to face it. But this morning, we're going to look at it because we need to. So let's talk about the consequence of sin as it unfolded in David's life. Proverbs 15 and 27 he who is greedy for gain troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. Now, if I was sitting in your seat, I'd be thinking, okay, we're talking about David committing adultery, and then we read a passage about greed. Where on earth is this going? I get that. Most of the time when we think of greed or covetousness, we think of it as associated with money. But when you go back to the Ten Commandments and read the prohibition of greed there, thou shalt not covet, he mentions wealth, he mentions material things, and he also says, don't covet your neighbor's wife. 
which is exactly what we find David doing on the rooftop of his house. He was greedy. Because of his position within God's greater plan, God allowed him to have several wives. And when you read the story about different ones of them, they were beautiful ladies and quality women at least among them. Women like Abigail, if you read much about her, you'll adore her. One of my favorite women, maybe my favorite woman of Scripture. Just a wonderful lady and beautiful. And David had all of that, but he was greedy for more. Because when it comes to sin and greed, there's always the one that you don't have. Whether you're talking about coins or whether you're talking about physical partners. And this passage says, if you're greedy for gain, you trouble your own house. And oh, how David troubled his family with his greed for his neighbor's wife. Sin would bring a natural consequence. David repented of this. He sought God's mercy and found it. But that did not stop sin from destroying him. That did not stop this spiritual principle that God warns us about sin that did not stop that from unfolding. Nathan the prophet came to David and confronted David with his sin and David made a decision, I'm going to confess it. He writes about that in the Psalms. And so he did. And he accepted full responsibility and Nathan told him, you're forgiven. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. What does the Bible teach us about how God forgives? In the Psalms we can read that when God removes our sin, He removes it as far as the east is from the west. That's as far apart as you can get. God's removal of our guilt is total. So when He forgave David, that forgiveness was total. But Uriah was still dead. A home was still destroyed. David's reputation was still tarnished. And on and on we could go. Sin didn't just cause a moral chaos in David's family. Sin caused psychological chaos in David's heart. We can read about that in various ways in Scripture. Let's turn to David's quest for forgiveness and read about this. Psalms 51 is a song well known that David wrote on the heels of his sin with Bathsheba. And he said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is always before me. Now here's what strikes me so powerfully about this song. Every word that we just read together, David penned after Nathan the prophet said, God's forgiven." And David came back and said, have mercy, blot out, wash, cleanse. Four times in three verses, <coughs> he said, God, forgive me. Now let me pose a question with a brief scenario. One time years ago, I remember a brother in the church expressing concerns about our public prayers. Because we always mention in our prayers some request for God's forgiveness or God's mercy. And he brought up a question that in his mind was valid. And I'm, it's healthy to, let's question ourselves. So I'm not criticizing him, but he said, you know, you just prayed a few minutes ago, earlier in the service, you know, at the table or whenever, that 
and you ask God's forgiveness. And a few minutes later, somebody says a prayer and they say the same thing. Do you not have faith that he forgave you a while ago when he asked? Well, okay. Let's stop and ask ourselves. Do I? And my answer was absolutely. I believe God forgave us. That request for forgiveness is not just for forgiveness. That quest is for me spiritually. After God, through a prophet, said, David, you're forgiven, he still said four times in three verses, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. That's not because David doubted it. That's because David needed to say it. His heart needed that medication. His heart needed that humility, for he had acted pridefully on the roof of his house and in the ugly quietness of his king's chamber with that woman. He had acted terribly pridefully in the pursuit of his greed. And the medicine for pride is humility. So in humility, he repeatedly expressed his need to God for forgiveness. That's not an expression of doubt. That's an expression of his faith and his trust in God. And that speaks of the psychological damage that sin brought. Nathan the prophet, in explaining to David he was forgiven, would also explain to him the consequence that sin brings, which is an echo of the warning that we find in Proverbs 15, ironically, written by David's son. The guy that brings greed to his heart brings trouble to his family. He said, now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. And he went on in verse 14. And said, however, because of this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who is born to you shall surely die. So through the prophet, David is receiving all this warning of terrible things that are coming to his family because of his sin. Now, let's talk about what this is not. This is not God saying, I forgive you, but... I'm going to gouge you and poke you and punish you and penalize you. That's not how forgiveness works. This is God saying, I forgive you, but sin still destroys, and here's what it's going to do. You know, I might make a foolish choice to work with my grill if I'm grilling food and work carelessly and bring my hand in contact with a hot grill surface and immediately regret that. No amount of regret of that is going to stop my hand from burning. There's still a consequence of that action. And that's the way it is with sin. I can regret it. I can be forgiven. But there's still consequences that come. And someone might observe, well, but God said that he would do this, that he would bring this to David. So let me try to illustrate the way God operates. Please endure me telling a silly story, okay, to kind of get the idea across. We came back from Tulsa. We were at Tulsa this weekend for a great area-wide meeting. Tanya and I were out Friday evening with the, our four grandchildren for supper. So we're in public, and we got the grandkids in tow, so granddad's got to act like a brat. That's just one of the unwritten rules, okay? 
So the nice lady serving her tables coming and going, and I had noticed there was a sign over there advertising their coconut cream pie. So she came back to the table to attend to the needs of the table, and I said, ma'am, I noticed you've got that sign for coconut cream pie over there. She said, yes, yes. I said, you know, it's kind of a coincidence. Y'all's, y'all's coconut pie has a lot in common with my left hand. And she looked a little suspicious, and I said, well, it's got meringue on it. <laughs> yeah, it's that bad. <laughs> that one's for you, Uncle Larry. <laughs> I made her roll her eyes, right? She rolled her eyes at me. She did. I made choices in that moment that had to do with the recoil, okay, from a really bad dad joke. She made choices in the way she interacted with us that resulted in the same thing. Now, who wrote the biological laws that make us respond to humor the way we respond to humor or failed humor, as the case might be? God. Who gave us a heart with the capacity to need social connection and social interaction? God. It was God that made man and said, He doesn't need to be alone. He needs to be with others like Him. That's all by the hand of God. Now, you're sitting there saying, Don't blame God for a terrible dad joke. I know He didn't tell the joke, but He created the things and made the laws that made that happen. And poor granddad made his choices that participated in the outcome of the moment. And a nice lady serving our table made her choices that participated in the outcome of the moment. So I could truthfully say that God put things in motion that made that happen. And I could truthfully say I made her roll her eyes. And I could truthfully say she rolled her eyes at me. They're all true. Depending on the perspective from which you describe the story. Now, God put in motion the spiritual laws that make sin what it is and that cause sin to bring consequences. He put in motion the laws that said don't covet your neighbor's wife and all the spiritual laws that go with that. And so when God said, David, I'm going to do these things, he's talking about things that would happen in David's life That would involve his choices and that would involve the choices of others. But it happened under the authority of God. And that's how it is that God wasn't punishing David. It was the consequence of David's sin. The very next chapter after the prophet confronted David, we read a nightmare story in David's life. He had a son who raped a daughter, half-brother and sister. 2 Samuel 13, verse 11. Now, when she had brought them to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not heed her voice, and being stronger than her, he forced her 
and he lay with her. Oh, that's an ugly story. We can't even fathom what's going on here. Here, David's got a son. And when you read the backstory there in 2 Samuel 13, you, you realize, you, you get the information. He, David's got a son who sees a woman and he begins to covet her. He wants her and he just makes himself sick with lust for her. And what's his answer? Well, his answer to that is if I see a woman and I want her bad enough, just take her. Now, where, would, where in the world would he get the idea that that's how it worked? Well, that's what dad did two chapters earlier. Now, I'm not saying that David forced Bathsheba the way and then forced Tamar. When you get into that, the narrative doesn't really indicate that. There are some who suspect that. There are some who think Bathsheba. I've asked some guys, and they said Bathsheba set that whole thing up. I don't know. The narrative doesn't just really tell us one way or the other. I'm not trying to say they're exactly equal. What happened? I'm saying they're similar in kind. You've got a man who fails to control his covetousness, and in that failure, he decides to take what he wants. And the way it often happens generationally, if dad does it, then when son does it, he does it and does it worse. If, if it could be worse, well, what's David's responsibility? Deuteronomy 22 verse 25 entertains the possibility of a man forcing a woman and under the circumstances described here, says if he sees a young woman in the countryside and a man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. Under certain circumstances, there could be the death penalty here. Now, in Deuteronomy 17, he foretold when Israel would have a king, he said, we come to the land, the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I'll set a king over me like all the nations that are around you. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So he's saying, there's going to come a time you're going to want a king and you'll have a king. And that time came to fruition in 1 Samuel 8 and verse 5 when Israel said to Samuel the prophet, now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Part of the king's assigned function was to preside over their system of judgment, their court system. And the law told them how to do that. Deuteronomy 16 verse 18 through 19, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. <clears throat> you shall not pervert justice. <clears throat> you shall uh, not show partiality, nor take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. So he told Israel, in your court system, litigate your cases fairly with justice. And he said the king is to judge Israel. He was the head of the court system. It was his job to make sure that's what happened. So what's David's job when he gets word that his son raped his daughter? His job is to make sure that there's a proper trial and that that's carried out without partiality. He can't look at the guy and say, well, he's my son. <laughs> you know, I better go easy on him because he's my son. He can't do that. He can't look at his daughter and say, well, she's my daughter, so I'm going to double punish the guy. You know, he can't do that. He's got to be fair. He's got to do whatever's necessary to make a fair trial happen. 
And that could bring the death penalty on his son. Maybe not. It would depend on the witnesses and what was testified. And there had to be eyewitnesses. And in the case of giving the death penalty in Israel, eyewitnesses had to be the first one to throw the stones. <laughs> there were a lot of laws that David was responsible to make sure he followed in carrying out justice in this. So what did he do? We know what he was supposed to do. What did he do? When the King David heard all these things, he was very angry. What he did was he got mad. He failed. His justice crumbled. Why? What's he going to do? Son, I'm sorry, but you've got to be brought on trial. For what? Doing what you got away with? You think David's sin compromised his ability to exact and oversee justice? You see what I mean? God did not actively do this. This is a natural consequence of David's sin. He has a, a son that follows his example, only takes it to the next level. And when it comes time to do justice, David's hands are weak. What can he do? We know what he should do. But you can imagine what a difficult thing that would be. Oh, it doesn't stop here. Tamar had a full blood brother named Absalom. And we read about his response to all this in 2 Samuel 13, verse 22 and verse 28 through 29. Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. We don't consent to that. We don't agree with it. We don't sanction it, but we understand it. He wants to see justice done, but he's getting carried away with himself. And so he makes a plot to kill his half-brother. Verse 28, Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Watch now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did so to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's son arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. You reckon when David got word about this, the, the words of the prophet echoed in his heart, the sword will not depart from your household. I wonder if Solomon thought about this when he penned Proverbs 15 that says, when you're greedy, you bring trouble to your family. This is a natural consequence of sin. God didn't jump into Absalom's mind and say, hey, have your brother killed. It's a natural consequence of David's sin that these things would unfold. This is the outcropping of David's judicial failure. That was an outcropping of his own personal failure. And Absalom's rebellion continued to grow. In 2 Samuel 15 verse 2, Absalom would arise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision <coughs> that Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? He would say, your servants from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there's no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made judge in the land and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. There was a crack in David's justice system because of his own failure. And his son Absalom crawled through that crack and exploited that weakness 
And somebody comes to the king for justice because remember, that's the king's job. And Absalom says, well, you know, dad's got some problems in his court system. He's thinking about his own sister and the failure to have a proper trial in that deal. You know, if I was in charge, I'd handle it better. But you know, dad, that's kind of, that's what's going on here. And that rebellion grew and grew. In verse 10 of 2 Samuel 15, Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem and they went along innocently and did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Galanite, <clears throat> David's counselor from his city, from Galo, while he offered sacrifices and the conspiracy grew strong for the people of Absalom continually increased in number. Absalom just kept rebelling against his dad and kept crawling through that crack you see in the justice system and expanding his power and he's getting ready to overthrow the throne and take it for himself. <clears throat> he even got David's chief counselor Ahithophel to join him in this rebellion. Things are really looking bad for King David. And David's sin with Bathsheba is the first domino that fell that started this series of events. Oh, it gets worse. Because sin is a, is a destroyer. <clears throat> 2 Samuel 16 and 20, Absalom said to Ahithophel, give advice as to what we should do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. The guy was sharp, and he gave sharp advice, but in this case it was sinister and sinful. On the same rooftop from which David had lusted his, for his neighbor's wife, his son now took several of his. Right up there on top, right up there in a tent, and everybody in town knew what was going on. How more disgraced could a father become? When I was studying this part of the story for the sermon, I was thinking, why would it hit the... I mean, he had been David's advisor. They were close. Why would he give... This kind of, this is dark. This is terrible. And I started studying about Ahithophel. And I learned that he had a prominent and well-known granddaughter by the name of Bathsheba. You think he didn't have revenge on his mind for what the king had done to his granddaughter and she lost her husband and she lost the baby that resulted from their adultery. You think he didn't have an axe to grind? You know, we used to say your chickens always come home to roost and that's what's happening to David. This God is not doing this. God wrote the spiritual laws that say people will make these kind of choices in the wake of sin. And some people will seek revenge in twisted ways. Absalom's been doing it. And now Ahithophel joins. But the rebellion 
turned south. David's forces eventually prevailed. As things began to turn the opposite way, there was a moment in there where Absalom had actually declined Ahithophel's advice, and Ahithophel knew which way this was going to go. So when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey and arose and went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his household in order and hanged himself and died, and there he was buried in his father's tomb. Well, let's think about this for a moment. David's married to a woman named Bathsheba. He couldn't stand to live without her. I mean, he had to have her, right? That's what he was thinking. Now, her husband is dead. She lost a baby because the presence of that baby was a disgrace to the king's name. He was supposed to be the forerunner of the Messiah. There's some natural consequences going on here. And now her grandpa's dead. So you've got this gal you couldn't live without. I mean, you've got to have her. Well, you got her now, and her husband's dead, her baby's dead, and now her grandpa committed suicide. How do you make that marriage work? How do you come home from your day of kingly duties and fling the door open and say, Honey, I'm home, let's get along. When you've caused all of that pain in her life, that's just another consequence of what David did. <clears throat> And as the rebellion continued to weaken, Joab, one of David's top military people, said, I cannot linger with you. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And ten young men who bore Absalom's or bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Word gets to the king and it says, Then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. As he went, he said thus, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. How pretty is she now, David? How much do you covet your neighbor's wife now? You're, you're enduring the consequence of your sin. You're bearing a heavy burden. You've been forgiven. Your slate's clean. But sin's a destroyer. There are reasons God tells us not to do these things. <clears throat> Such a bitter, hard story. Look at it. David commits adultery. There's blasphemy against the cause of God because of the result of that adultery, and so the child had to die. But then there's an assault within David's family from a son to a daughter. And then after that assault there's, uh, assault, there's judicial failure. And after that, there's murder. Then after that, there's rebellion against the king. Then after that, an advisor betrays you. But it turns out that ad advisor is your new wife's grandpa. And so he's got an axe to grind. So he says, go take my grandson-in-law's <laughs> wives. And when that goes south, Absalom dies and grandpa kills himself. And how much worse could it be? After the first time I preached this sermon, I, I went home and I told my wife, I hate this sermon. I'm just being real with you. And I said, I'm going to preach it everywhere I go. Because I need it. And people need it. God still used 
David. And that's the good news. Amen. There's sunshine here, y'all. I'm, I'm going to spend a moment on it, okay? Psalms 38, verse 1 through 8. Oh, Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden they are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I'm troubled. I'm bowed down greatly. I go mourning all day long. For my loins are full of inflammation. There's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. That's the psychological damage of David's sin. That's how much fun adultery was for him. Psalms 41 and verse 4. I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Now we get into David's coping mechanism. He pled repeatedly for God's mercy. We come to the reading for this morning's service. Psalms 32, 3 through 5. When I kept silent, my groans, bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of, of summer. Selah. That's when David hadn't yet talked to Nathan the prophet, okay? But then Nathan the prophet came to him and confronted him. And now we get to that part. Verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's the moment when David found relief. That's the moment when he began to find healing. <clears throat> Did the effects of sin continue to recoil through his life? Absolutely. Did it continue to bring its destruction? Absolutely. Because that's what sin does. <clears throat> but in the course of that, David persistently sought God and persistently served God and he persistently found healing and wholeness. And God used him. And he used him to do great things. Even though he had made great mistakes, God forgave him because of his repentant response and God used him to do great things. <clears throat> and near the end of David's life, he sat down and he wrote a song about that. I want to read just a portion of it. Psalms 18, verse 4 through 6. The pangs of death surrounded me. The floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. <clears throat> In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple. And my cry came before him, even to his ears. And from that point forward in the song, David sings about all the great things God did at David's hand. There is healing. There is restoration. Don't lose sight of that. But we need to understand the consequences of sin. Psalms 32 and 10 says, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord Mercy shall surround him. <clears throat> when David was in the bottom, he said, Sheol, death, the grave surrounded him. But through God's mercy, he rediscovered that mountaintop at which the Lord's mercy surrounded him. And David left this world 
a great man, a man of God. There's hope, but that hope is only in Jesus. I want to ask you to remember when David wept for his son Absalom, he said, I wish I could have died in your place, but he couldn't. But one day, one of David's offspring who would come into this world who could die in our place, and his name is Jesus. David craved to be able to do what he knew he couldn't do, but God provided a lamb. God provided a sacrifice that could die in Absalom's place and in David's place and in my place and in your place. And his name is Jesus. And that's where our hope is. And that's the beauty and the power of the gospel that gives us hope against the backdrop of the terrible news of the consequence of sin. As you think about Jesus this morning, if you need him, you need his help. This congregation wants to help you find that help that can only be had in him. Won't you please come? Have a seat on the front while we stand and while we sing. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. For further information about our church, please go to normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com.